I mean, why? why? From the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, you're listening to Veritalk. Veritalk. Your window into the minds of PhDs at Harvard University. I was curious. I've always wondered. Why is, Where did how it, did we get, why? 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 I'm Anna Fisher Pinkert, and in this mini-series, we're talking about displacement. Why and how do people get set apart from their communities? As always, we're going to answer that question through the research of PhD students in different fields at Harvard. We're going to start in Burma. Hated and hounded from Burmese soil, hundreds of Rohingya Muslims have now made it to Bangladesh. Now, before I recorded this episode, I typed the word Rohingya into Google. R-O-H-I-N-G-Y-A. More than 500,000 Rohingya refugees... 625,000 Rohingya refugees have fled the brutal... used to be a misery at this Rohingya Those headlines are all that most Americans know about the Rohingya. Where are we supposed to live? Frankly, even if you make the trip to Burma, it's hard to learn much more about what's going on with the Rohingya people. It's nearly impossible to get to parts of Rakhine State where over 140,000 Rohingya live in internally displaced persons camps, or IDP camps for short. But Krisa Pugh actually went to northern Rakhine on a research trip. She's a PhD student in sociology at Harvard's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. So I was there in June and July, the, the most recent crisis and displacement started in August. So this is actually before the most recent large-scale kind of mass um, exodus. But a lot of the NGOs had been kicked out of this region. And so I go and um, I think I saw one other foreigner while I was there. I was there for about a week in this particular area. And I'm literally the only person. And so I just stood out. The Rohingya people are from Rakhine State, a part of Burma that borders Bangladesh. And they're a minority Muslim community in Burma where the dominant religion is Buddhism. Krisa is looking at both sides of the conflict. And that conflict is complicated and really old. The history of the conflict is really quite disputed. There's really no kind of authoritative history, and I think that's actually part of why the conflict is happening, because this history is so disputed. Some people would say that the arrival of of Islam to Burma in, you know, the 6th century AD is kind of when you really need to start tracing this history to really understand, like, why we're in in the situation where we are today. But others would point to colonialism as the root of modern-day ethnic and religious conflict in Burma. To the British who colonized Burma in the early 19th century, the Golden Land... The British colonized Burma in the early 19th century through three successive wars. The way in which kind of they thought of religion and kind of imposed their understanding of religion was very much counterintuitive and disruptive to the way that the Burmese and other ethnic groups had understood religion prior to the British arrival. Prior to the arrival of the British, religion and politics in Burma were pretty intertwined, and there weren't necessarily really strict definitions around religious identity. But the British loved categories. They also kind of codified these notions of, like, 
what religious identity looked like. And so they kind of reified identities of other groups too. So like Muslim, Christian, Buddhist. And so these categories, which were much more fluid prior to 1824, there were hard lines drawn between these religious categories. The British eventually left when Burma gained its independence in 1948. In Rangoon itself, 4.20 a.m. was the hour fixed by Burmese astrologers as the most auspicious time for the transfer of power. But those categories stuck around, particularly for ethnic and religious minorities like the Rohingya. According to the Burmese constitution, there are 135 quote-unquote races of Burma and... um, There have been times that the Rohingya have been considered a national race of Burma, and there are times that they haven't been. And so right now, particularly as of 1982, there was a citizenship law that was passed that basically bars the Rohingya from citizenship. Since then, really, in this nation-building project, they've been very much excluded. And that's um, because of this exclusion, the legal exclusion, that's kind of provided the basis through which um, a lot of the discrimination, a lot of the violence against them has taken place. One of the things that is kind of confusing in my mind is that there are Burmese who are Muslim, Mm -hmm. who are not Rohingya, who are included in government and politics and in those groups of recognized people. Mm -hmm. Why are the Rohingya singled out? Yeah, so there are um, there are a number of other different Burmese Muslim groups that are not Rohingya. They're much smaller, so the Rohingya are actually the largest population, so numbering roughly a million individuals within the country. They're definitely by far the largest group of Muslims in Burma. The Rohingya are kind of less integrated in society, so a lot of people will say because they, they don't speak the traditional dialect of Burmese, you know, they speak their own Rohingya language. Rakhine State, where both Buddhists and Rohingya Muslims live, is also separated from the rest of Burma by a mountain range. It's actually easier to get to Bangladesh from Rakhine State than it is to get to much of the rest of Burma. There are arguments that because of like the geographic marginalization and isolation of the Rohingya, that they've had a harder time kind of being like incorporated into the state, which is also the story of like a lot of other ethnic minority groups within Burma, because they mostly all live kind of on the periphery, on the margins. Being a stateless ethnic minority puts the Rohingya in a difficult position and continued waves of violence against them, some of which have come from the military itself, has led many to flee. About a million of them have fled to Bangladesh over the last probably two decades, but 140,000 of them are still in Burma. And some of them are actually displaced within their own cities, but until 2012, in the city in Situé and in other cities around Rakhine State, Rakhine Buddhists and the Rohingya Muslims lived together. They weren't particularly integrated, like they had kind of separate quarters within the neighborhoods, but they were all, you know, the, the cities were relatively mixed. Then, in 2012, a series of riots broke out in Rakhine State, kicking off a wave of violent conflict between Muslims and Buddhists, which in turn led to action by the Burmese military, a group that has a history of violence toward the Rohingya. The Muslim quarters, one in particular, Nazi in Sitwe, was actually surrounded by guards, by the military, by the police. They literally overnight constructed barbed wire and created a, a camp and within the city. Six years later, the Muslims who lived in this quarter, which has an area of 25 or 30 blocks, 
are still confined there. And then the Muslims who lived in other quarters, um, kind of outside of this area, those were the ones who were displaced to the IDP camps. And it was those IDP camps that I visited. Unlike refugee camps outside of Burma, which are run by external organizations like the UN, the IDP camps in Burma are run by the Burmese government. Krisa wanted to see for herself what was happening, and that's how she got permission to go to an IDP camp in northern Rakhine State. It was really just like just devastating and alarming to see the conditions um, of the Rohingya camps because, you know, they're desperate. You know, you have families that are living um, like eight to ten in a house, like sleeping on mud floors. Fake guns were really quite popular and like quite common, like as children's toys, but also like adults would just be kind of carrying around these like fake guns. And so just the degree to which like this, these environments have been really militarized and um, just really struck me. It was, you know, I was conducting an interview and at one point like this little kid was couldn't have been more than like three or four, like came in with a fake gun and just like kind of shot at me for a good like five minutes as I was doing an interview. It was just like this very surreal experience. The community is really worried about, you know, primarily, you know, freedom of movement um, and education were kind of the top two and, and freedom of religious practice were kind of the top three issues that people cited as being their major concerns. You know, when are we going to get out? When are we going to be able to resume our our daily lives, you know, outside of the camps? They're, they're not allowed to work since so they're literally just like languishing away in these camps. But getting to the camp was in some ways just as harrowing. I took the boat up there. It was like a four or five hour boat ride. There was a movie on the boat playing for the whole ride. The movie is based on a real life rape and murder of a Buddhist woman, allegedly committed by Muslim men in 2012. And that's actually what kicked off the riots of 2012. And so they've since made a movie about this. And they show this movie on the boat when you're going to this area where the, the like a lot of the violence actually happened to essentially like inflame the people. So like when they get to this predominantly Muslim area, they've just seen literally just like hours of footage of this like young Buddhist girl being raped by Muslim men. There's this narrative that's being spun that like Buddhism is under threat, that Buddhist women are being raped and killed. So this narrative has been like very like skillfully deployed by by the media, by like monks. So Krisa asked Rakhine Buddhists what they thought about the Rohingya. I tell them that I was going into the Rohingya camps and I would tell them what they that what I was seeing and they just automatically denied it. They were like, well, we've heard that they have it better than us. We heard that the government is, you know, and the government and, you know, the U.N. and the various U.N. agencies are giving them more food, you know, better food, better materials to, like, build their houses. The media, social media has kind of constructed this this idea like that the Rohingya are, like, not individuals that are persecuted. I mean, the narrative, you know, that's very common in Burma is that the Rohingya are actually, they're illegal immigrants from Bengal, you know, slash Bangladesh, that are not indigenous to Burma. They don't have histories there, that they've only come more recently to basically, you know, steal the land, um, kind of settle this land that doesn't belong to them, has never belonged to them. 
The Rohingya have been in Rakhine State for generations, but Krisa thinks that erasing that history makes it easier to justify the treatment of the Rohingya today. This idea of erasure has been like really, really important in, in the governments and, you know, the, the militaries and just like the general public's attempt to really, really kind of carry through the slow-burning genocide that we're seeing. Krisa says the Buddhists that she talked to didn't just deny the day-to-day desperation of life in the camps, they denied their Rohingya identity. So people don't call the Rohingya Rohingya in Burma because to name them means to acknowledge their existence um, as an ethnic group within Burma. You know, they're referred to as... Bengali illegal immigrants, you know, they're referred to as Kala, which is an ethnic slur for this community, but they're not referred to as Rohingya. Refusing to name someone kind of puts them slowly outside of this circle of recognition, denying their identity, denying the realities, then makes people say, well, oh, you know, this group exists at the margin. There must be a reason, like it must be their own shortcomings. It must be because... They're new to the country and they haven't earned, you know, their right to be politically, socially, economically engaged. Right now, you might be thinking about how this logic has been applied to minority groups in other countries, maybe even in the United States. And Chris has been thinking about that, too. She told me about a 2014 study in which New Yorkers were shown statistics about the percentage of the prison population that's made up of black men. So that's either 40 percent nationally or 60 percent in New York City. And just looking at that higher number, that 60 percent statistic, made New Yorkers more likely to report that they were concerned about crime and less likely to sign a petition against stop and frisk policies. Krisa thinks that seeing evidence of inequality doesn't always change people's minds about where that inequality comes from. So I think the same thing kind of happens in Burma with the Rohingya. People kind of see the Rohingya, they hear about them being in camps and they hear about them like having to flee to Bangladesh and they're like, well, it must be something that they've done. We can't have sympathy toward them. They've created the situation themselves, you know, whether it's they're lazy, they're here illegally, whatever it is, it's that narrative that their condition can only be explained by their own actions. This leads to a vicious cycle in which the Rohingya are marginalized, their stories are erased, and then they become further marginalized. If you ask Krisa if there's an end in sight, well, there's no easy answer. 700,000 Rohingya have fled Burma to Bangladesh primarily since late August 2017. And, you know, initially kind of in the months, September, October, November, people were really concerned about making sure that when the Rohingya returned to Burma, that they don't go back into the same situations that they left. That was kind of the conversation of a few months ago. Now we're realizing that that's actually, return actually isn't, you know, really looking like an option. A lot of the villages from which the Rohingya fled are being bulldozed. They're actually building new homes and villages that are Rakhine Buddhist only, literally on top of the the kind of ruins and remains of, of these burned and demolished Rohingya villages. What happens when a group of people is displaced and return isn't possible? 
what happens when two generations or three live out their lives in a state of displacement? What sort of culture emerges from a displaced people? Next time on Veritalk, we're going to talk about the literature and art of displacement. The place that you left behind changes. The moment you leave, your imagination has to compensate for all of the what-ifs, what, what is it like now. So there are imaginary and alternative geographies that are built through these narratives of displacement. Veritalk is produced by me, Anna Fisher-Pinkert, at the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Our sound designer is Ian Koss. Our logo is by Emily Wilson. Our executive producer is Anne Hall. You can find new episodes of Veritalk wherever you get your podcasts or at gsas.harvard.edu.